York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And we strongly advise any truck drivers transporting highly volatile sticks of dynamite not to listen to this week's episode until they arrive at their destination, lest you get distracted and accidentally veer off the road. That's because our listener's choice this time is William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Inspired by Sorcerer, we're also going to recommend some movies about other deadly professions. And I was going to joke about how it's too bad no one's made a movie about podcasting, the deadliest profession of all. But they have! Kevin Smith's Tusk. And guess what? It actually did turn out to be kind of deadly. It wasn't that great for the audience either. Mm, Well, anyway, we can't recommend that movie, but we'll be recommending some others you can rent or stream at home right now. Before we get to that, though, we have Opening Break, the segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few new films on demand. Allison, it is your turn. What have you got for our picks? Well, first up, uh, new on demand, or at least it will be by the time this podcast goes up, is Miles Ahead, Don Cheadle's directorial debut and his passion project, in which he stars as jazz legend Miles Davis. Uh, This film actually looks at Davis in the late 70s, which is a time when he had stopped recording music and disappeared from the scene for a while. And in the film, Ewan McGregor plays this fictional music journalist named Dave Braden, who kind of bluffs his way into Davis's house and ends up with him on a romp that involves gunshots and car chases and stealing tapes that Davis recorded from Columbia Records. And uh, all the while, he flashes back to his marriage to dancer Frances Taylor, played by Emma Yazzi Corianaldi, a relationship that was really happy, and then, of course, fell apart. One thing that musical biopics will always teach you, do not date or marry a musician. Um, This movie got a lot of praise, and I think uh, earned a lot of praise for like not paying attention to the normal beats of biopics. In particular, not starting with Davis at the bottom or starting with Davis at this moment where he decided, he found his inspiration. It starts with Davis at a moment where he is really not doing anything, where it looks like his career might be over, where it seems like he's really lost touch with the the magic that he really, you know, he brought to his earlier records. And I think Cheadle's very good in this movie. I don't love some of the fictional aspects of the plot. There are times where it reminded me, or ahead of time, of Vinyl, the HBO series, that is filled with a lot of somewhat strained hijinks. But this is definitely worth seeing for Cheadle's performance and for the way the movie just really breaks from a pattern that is well enough established that there has been already a great spoof of this genre. So that is Miles Ahead. It will be available on July 19th, so when this podcast goes up. Also now available on demand, and one, a movie that I've been looking forward to seeing, I missed in theaters, is The Dark Horse. This is the New Zealand drama. There's another movie called Dark Horse that came out around the same time that I believe is a documentary about a horse. No horses, as far as I know, in this one. Just Cliff Curtis as Genesis Patini, who is a brilliant Maori chess player who also has uh, severe bipolar disorder. And uh, in the movie, it follows how he kind of pushes through uh, his, his, his mental illness to also start a chess program and mentor uh, his community and you know, become a real force in his community. This movie got great reviews, especially in New Zealand. It was like, I think some people declared it one of the greatest New Zealand films ever made. Didn't get as much attention here, though I think the uh, critical reception was good. So it's one I'd like to check out, especially since Cliff Curtis, I think, 
in American movies gets used as this all-purpose, whatever ethnicity you need kind of character actor. So to, you know, see him back in a, a, a kind of good, meaty role in a New Zealand film is something that I'm really interested in. So that is The Dark Horse. That is now available. Also now available is Zero Days, the latest, for now, from Alex Gibney, probably until next month. It is a documentary focused on Stuxnet, a piece of malware that was intended as, a, you know, a kind of act of stealth war from the U.S. and Israel uh, it was made. It was created to destroy a part of an Iranian nuclear facility, and then, of course, uh, it didn't go all as planned. And of course, there's always the possibility of this being done to us. And it's basically an apocalypse scenario in the form of a documentary about malware. Uh, and I do like a little "Oh, we're doomed" in a documentary every once in a while, as long as it's done well. And this reportedly is. That is zero days, and it is now available on demand. In 1971, William Friedkin directed The French Connection. It received five Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year. In 1974, he directed The Exorcist. It made history. Since then, Friedkin has spent over two years in five countries on three continents, creating his latest film, an unusual adventure into the realm of suspense. Listener's Choice Time on Film Spotting SVU. On every episode of the podcast, you, the listeners, choose our main review from three options. On SVU number 115, we gave you a trio of movies that were critically maligned and financially disastrous in their day, but have since been reconsidered and even acclaimed as unheralded gems of their era. The first was Heaven's Gate. That was a, a pick inspired by the recent passing of its director, Michael Cimino. Option two was Sorcerer from Exorcist and French Connection director William Friedkin. And option three was One from the Heart by Francis Ford Coppola. And as I think we both expected, One from the Heart only had a few more votes than that. It lagged well behind in third place. It was, it was much closer between Heaven's Gate and Sorcerer, but in the end, Friedkin's film wound up winning about 47% of the vote. Contrary to its title, Sorcerer has nothing to do with magic or witchcraft. The title refers to one of two trucks that wind up hauling boxes of extremely volatile dynamite through South American jungles, and they're headed to this oil derrick fire that the uh, TNT, the dynamite, whatever it is, is the only hope of putting out. And it's brought there by four men, each of whom gets a prologue before the main story. There's Victor, a French investment banker who flees to South America to escape a debt and a scandal. There's Kassem, who's the only member of an Arab terrorist cell that doesn't get caught after blowing up this bomb in Jerusalem. Milo is this hitman who, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, kind of murders his way onto the crew. And last but certainly not least, there is Jackie Scanlon, a.k.a. Juan Dominguez, played by French Connection star Roy Scheider, who is wanted by the mafia for his part as the getaway driver in a heist. Uh, When we first meet Jackie, or Juan, as he's known in South America, he gets distracted during uh, the heist getaway, and he drives this car right into a truck, causing a catastrophic accident. This is not a good sign for this guy and his future as a driver of dynamite. Uh, Foreshadowing, not so good. Although Friedkin always resisted the notion that Sorcerer was a remake, it is based on the same novel that inspired the classic French thriller The Wages of Fear. Uh, 
which has long been considered one of the best films of its era. So let's start there, Allison. I want to ask first, have you seen The Wages of Fear? And if you have, how do you think Sorcerer compares? And if you haven't, did watching Sorcerer make you more interested to go back and, and seek that out? I haven't seen The Wages of Fear, okay. so uh, it's a blind spot for me. So I can't speak to how it compares other than that I, of course, went and read up a description of, of the plot to see how it diverged in its basic form. Uh, I already feel like I already want to watch The Wages of Fear. It's one of those films that's, you know, that you always have on the list in the back of your head and that I have always wanted I've I just never gotten around to, but I've always also figured would go down easier than some of the other films on that list mm-hmm. that are slightly more work. Uh, that said, I I feel like what I've read about the differences was intriguing enough to me uh, to read up more about Friedkin's choices. Mm. Uh, I I like I really really enjoyed watching this film, but I think that his idea, particularly to start with the prologues. And to ground these characters uh, in like very far flung locations and in in their specific crimes and escapes from them uh, was intriguing to me uh, in a way that maybe we can talk about after that. But you have seen The Wages of Fear. I have. Did you feel that this film lacks in comparison or does it not matter? Well, I'm not an expert on The Wages of Fear. I have seen it. I have the Criterion Blu-ray and I've watched it a couple of times, but not in a while. And uh, the the big difference, ironically, is what you're talking about, at least in my memory, is there's not these prologues explaining how these characters all came together, or at least why they're down in South America. And those actually, I ultimately found those scenes to be kind of the weakest in Friedkin's movie. So while you were saying you like that, you know, it's funny because I almost had the opposite reaction. To me, they felt a little superfluous. I didn't ultimately care really where they entirely came from. I felt like the prologues weren't long enough to make them really like rich and interesting. And I didn't end up thinking it really mattered how they got there. And other than maybe the fact that the the character played by Roy Scheider was a driver and there's some sort of irony there and that, and especially in the fact that he had such a, he got into so much trouble because he was not a great driver. Like, I don't know that it really makes that much of a difference in the actual story once we get into it. And at least in my memory, the wages of fear kind of gets, I think it's actually a longer movie, but it gets kind of into the suspense a little quicker, or at least it felt a little quicker. I felt like the beginning of Sorcerer kind of dragged. Once it got into sort of the intense suspense sequences, I thought it worked pretty well. But the the prologue, I felt, was the weakest part. Oh, I love the prologue. I feel like, and I'm curious as someone who you've seen The Wages of Fear, what you think of this, I felt like the prologue for me is what grounded it in this and kind of leaned into the feeling that they were this town is almost like a purgatory in which they were stuck. Sure. You know, it's in unidentified country. It has almost like, it seems to have almost a generic version of like uh, a South American conflict, uh, you know, uh, dictatorship mm-hmm. and corruption and an American country there exploiting it for all its worth, or American company there exploiting it for all its worth. I felt that the vagueness of that combined with the specificity of what all of these men had done in different places that had gotten them to this, like this hellish place in the middle of nowhere. I I thought that that really added 
I don't know, this almost like allegorical weight to it, that these are all men who, you know, had gone on the run and then ended up stuck, like literally stuck, like unable to afford to get out, forced to keep working, but unable to make enough money to leave. Sure. And that having backgrounds for them, mainly in the way they were contrasted and the the difference between them, just like, just added to that sense of this place as like a a waiting room, basically. Right. I mean, I guess I I, I know, I see what you're saying. I'm just not sure that that um, those prologues, you know, really, I feel like you could get a lot of that without them personally. And I almost feel like it makes those characters less relatable and universal. It's that there, I think, you know, if they were just there and we didn't know what they did, but they were still trapped and they couldn't get out, See, there would be something I, mm, interesting about that, like which then, is more the wages of fear, but maybe sure. I'm but that's also then biased. it's a movie about a group of desperate men and the four of them that got chosen, right? Mm-hmm. This is specifically a movie about these four men and then who have happened to get gathered yeah, into this. I guess. I, I, it doesn't seem like that big of a difference to me, to be honest with you. Yeah, I just, I feel like one thing is just like a group of desperate men and the four that were lucky enough. I don't know. I, I, I feel like having the prologues made it feel specifically about these four men and their grasping at a really terrible chance to... Not even, I mean, to escape, but they can't go back. Most of them can't go back to the lives they had. So it's not like they can ever go home. Yeah. You know? It's a pipe dream. Yes. I mean, I I think that's what's good about both versions is that that idea that this world in general, and I think that The Wages of Fear has that kind of allegorical value too, even though it doesn't have the prologues, just this idea that that the, this world is so kind of hopeless that there's really nothing you can do. You, you're just exploited until you are literally blown to pieces, you know, that there is no hope of escape. And even as you said, like, what are they going to do even if they make a bunch of money? I guess they can get out of here, but where will they go? I yeah, guess they well, can go somewhere exiles, else. Right? They're right. all exiled. That's, I, I think that's, that, le- that adds to the sense of atmosphere. But I think that also, interestingly, they are all, or not all of them, most of them are outsiders. They're not even from the continent. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one who is the assassin, who we know the least about, is also a kind of like all of these signals are about him being kind of like uh, upper or higher class than a lot of the workers, right? Mm-hmm. They are all men who have basically are not accustomed to being in the position of being exploited. And they have, it's like they have almost like had to relinquish uh, industrialized nation status, you mm-hmm. know, that they suddenly, they understand that they are getting a terrible deal that is usually only applied to people who are powerless like everyone else in this village, but they can't get around that. I mean, that is their perspective, right? And I feel like that is part of the reason that you have those prologues is to kind of lean into the fact that they are acutely aware of the power they've lost, Right, but I mean, if you have a you know a guy, an American, and a Frenchman, uh, and a, a guy from the Middle East, and you know that, that that to some extent you could you could get that without saying what happened, how they got there. Clearly, then they have lost that same status. If they're here in this sort of hellhole in the middle of South America and can't get out, and are you know clearly they're not there because they want to be there. I feel like you could get some of that. That said, I do love how the characters come together there and and just the just the grittiness of this town you know i think you said it was sort of this you know it's not really a named place or a named south american country that it might be generic in some way but the the just the the 
the grime on the face of Roy Scheider. His close-ups in this movie are so magnificent. He's just staring at him and the other guys too, as they they have this sort of broken quality to their, you know, the, even though they are still alive a, 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 through most of the movie, that they just seem like almost like walking ghosts or zombies or something. They've been so ground down by the world and by their desperate situation that there's there's something kind of gloriously depressing about about just the way they stand and look at each other in their clothes which are so ratty i just all the little details are fantastic sure, the places they stay uh the the frenchman is staying in a place with like chicken wire on the windows you right. know that sitting just smoking and staring at the rain hmm. and the rain is just torrential and horrible hmm. yeah it's i it's really just an almost symbolic place of awfulness now let's talk about a little bit about the the suspense sequences. The most famous one is this one with a bridge, a suspension bridge. It's a it's a pretty spectacular sequence. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm curious what you thought in general. But did you ever have a thought like, if this is like incredibly sensitive dynamite, shouldn't it have blown up a long time ago? I feel like you have to abandon that <laughs> like right away. Yeah, you Otherwise. Do. As soon as they start driving down the road, you know, like they would blow up right away at the yeah. end. Yeah. I do love that it's like, well, this is very dangerous material. We couldn't possibly risk putting it in a helicopter. Stick it in the trucks. These like uh, trucks that are cobbled together from eight different broken down trucks. That'll be fine. I mean, and I think that's to some extent that is uh, part of the point is that these guys seemingly have no shot of actually making it. It is just such a desperate, desperate job that – only only these kind of men would be willing to take it. Sure. And also, as they, they figure out immediately, the assumption is that at least one of the trucks is going to blow up. They right. know that right. the reason there are two they're trucks redundant. is that, yeah, the expectation is well, at least one of them is not going to make it, right. if not both. Right. And I think, you know, to be in a position where you realize that your life is so cheap that everyone is competing for one of these jobs, mm-hmm. you know, is... is is something I don't. It just speaks to the great desperation and depression of the situation. That said, there are some really spectacular shots on that bridge, where the bridge is shaking and it's raining, and they're like a couple of inches above the river. And the the I don't know how they did it, but that truck looks like it is literally seconds from t- tottering completely over into the water. I mean, it is just shocking. Yeah, no, those the two sequences in which they cross the bridge are incredible, I yeah. think. And the cracking of the planks as they go along, mm-hmm. you know, and just like rolling bump over bump over logs that are not necessarily going to hold them. Yeah. Yeah, and then the torrential rain, just rain that you can barely see through. I mean, maybe I mean, did I did think at one point this bridge is so comically dilapidated maybe it could have been a slightly more realistic bridge that well, like almost he's going so over the top and the pouring rain and the and the bridge that looks like it it literally came out of a garbage or something it is just so rickety and and there's like one plank for every four places there should be a plank and it's it, it doesn't look like they, the car the, the truck could get across it really I don't, I mean, yeah, and the, like, the dynamite would blow up. I don't know. What are these questions? I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> these are the questions Wait, a man why thinks did, of. Why did four people from different countries end up in this town in South America? Well, they know. explained it all. It, they explain that they are, like, like, none of this holds up to great scrutiny in terms of realism, nor do I think I really want it to. And the same, you know, like, 
at the point before they end up on the bridge, they talk to a random man who says, do you want to go home? Mm. You know, I like deep, (laughs) deeply portentous uh, question that is not realistic, but obviously I think comes across as very meaningful at that moment. Mm -hmm. No one can go home. None of these characters can go home. The best they can do is get out of where they are. Right. I also did, I did like the sequence too, where the, the giant log sort of is in their way and then they have to rig this very elaborate uh, device to get around it. And the sort of the, let's say the money shot of that sequence is, looks so, again, like it was so dangerous to shoot. Like it looks so, like a, it, that is a real explosion. That is not uh, a little, a little model or something like that. They clearly just, destroyed something with a lot of explosives yeah you i think what makes those scenes so tense and so well done is just how grounded in physical details this movie is Mm -hmm. you know you mentioned the dirt on people's faces the rain in the scenes where they cross the bridge is like such believable terrible heavy like monsoon style rain Mm -hmm. and yeah that scene just like the ways in which you see the rigged up a uh, bag of sand and the sand dripping right. out of it, or the ways in which he has to kind of sharpen a stick to poke holes yes. to begin with. I think that takes he takes his time the with the tangibility these of yeah. it. Also, those like the very physical details. Right, uh, the movie really locks them into your head. And I did like the fact that the guy who was in the the group that was making bombs was the one who was sort of the expert in how do we blow up this uh, log. I thought that was a nice detail as well. I will say I also really liked. I mean, as I'm sort of making asking these questions about kind of superfluous realism details like i really like the end of the movie where it's sort of abandoned reality and it he, it almost seems like he's he the the truck has driven onto the moon or mars or something like there's this sort of psychedelic sequence that i actually loved it's maybe my favorite part of the entire movie and it was probably the least like the wages of fear besides the prologues is just very strange and surreal and I don't know. There, I got a little bit of like an Apocalypse Now vibe from the movie in general, but from that where it almost seemed like Scheider and maybe, I don't know, maybe Friedkin kind of lost his mind making this movie. That was kind of the vibe I was getting. Yeah, I, I think that sequence is, is great, especially in in the way that the truck ends up in this like rocky, strange territory. Mm. Yeah, and he staggers across the finish line with the boxes and the the gouts of fire in the background, it does look like, it looks like hell. Yeah. It looks like he is in hell. Mm. From um, purgatory to hell, I suppose. Yeah. I, I was interested in something Friedkin has said multiple times about this movie, and that is kind of the idea that it's about fate, which is something that I didn't think was all, honestly all that interesting to me. I kind of resisted it watching it, because one of the things that I think those prologues go out of their way to prove is that all of these men made these choices. You know, they were only the ones who happened to escape, maybe. You know, the the Parisian basically left, abandoned his wife, right. uh, survived his partner's suicide, and uh, and went on the lam. Uh, Roy Schneider is this, uh, Roy Schneider is this, the only one who escaped from the crash. You know, um, the Kassem is like the only one who escaped of the bombers. And then who knows what's going on with the assassin? Yeah, not clear. <laughs> but I, couldn't you, know? you say that it, two of those examples, it feels like you could argue are definitely, you know, fate or quirks of destiny because, you know, they have that accident and Roy Scheider is lucky enough to walk away. He could have been the guy who dies. Right. Or, you know, the, the, it seems like whoever got arrested from this terrorist group, it's all also sort of luck of the draw, whoever he just, 
happened to be the one who got away. So I guess there it is there. I don't find that to be one of the more interesting elements of the film, though. Yeah, and I think that it also, I feel like by stressing that it, in weird, weird ways, frees up these characters from the choices that they made. You right. know, they were ultimately bombers and thieves and, you know, all of these, uh, and uh, assassins. And assassins, and then... What was he doing? He was like stealing from financial white, white collar, theft. yeah, unscrupulous <laughs> banking practices. Yeah, and I feel like the stressing of the fate in that, uh, I think, kind of de-emphasizes the fact that they are all basically the ones who got away um, when other people in their group got caught. Right. I suppose, though, that the, looking at it as you know the idea that there's no escape from any of this. And you have to be very cynical to appreciate it, but just the idea that these guys are trapped no matter what they do. They wind up in this place from which there is almost literally no escape. I guess if you get into that, then how that connects back to the idea of fate or destiny, I suppose that kind of works. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. But yeah. in general, I don't know that that's the strongest part of the film, regardless of what Friedkin says. I do think it would have been fascinating because this movie is sort of famously, you know, it was a, a flop. It was a very expensive movie to make. And it was a bit of a flop. I do think it would have been fascinating to see this movie when it came out, which was literally like a week, two weeks after Star Wars. I think that it would it must have looked, you know, those scenes that were set in that weird otherworldly landscape at the end. It's like this movie came out of another world, a different Hollywood from the one that made Star Wars. It, it's kind of unbelievable that those two movies could come out so close together. Well, that this is what was looked at as the end of an era and the start of another one. Right? It kind of feels like it, frankly. Yeah, that like this was the fading end of the, the great era of the 70s and then Star Wars came in yeah. and kicked off the age of the blockbuster. I mean, I can see why it was sort of roundly rejected by a lot of people it does feel i mean if you say well the zeitgeist was with star wars at this point this is definitely not in touch with that zeitgeist um that said i'm not sure i can quite get on the this is a unheralded masterpiece bandwagon you know friedkin thinks it's his best movie i i personally no offense to william friedkin i don't think it's his best movie i liked it but i i wouldn't put it quite on that vaunted pedestal when he's made so many other great movies but, uh, yeah, I'm glad I finally got to see it. I, I really enjoyed it. I would like to see it on the big screen. You know, watching it at home was good, and it was a pretty good print of it online. But I imagine this is a better movie when you see it big. I believe it. I like it more than you do. I think that I really like the ways in which it departs from maybe a more realistic version of this scenario and turns it into this, I don't know, like kind of mythic dark moment uh in the lives of these four men uh almost five really mm -hmm. there's a we didn't even mention the nazi the the, the who was supposed to go and then doesn't end up going right uh, but i think that it's it there's a sloppy to, sloppiness to it certainly there's a a kind of it, it it's so like rear loaded in terms of all the suspense uh with this long setup and yet I think that there's something to that kind of grandeur that I, I think makes it better, the fact that it is uneven in that way for me. Uh, I think that, I don't know, it just feels, it feels very singular in what it's reaching for, even if every once in a while I don't feel like I understand what that is. Mm. All right. Well, that is Sorcerer, and it is available right now for rent.
many jobs out there quite as uniquely dangerous as driving unstable dynamite down a rocky road uh, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But we decided for our Q Shot section to highlight some other movies featuring dangerous jobs of other sorts. Uh, not not something that I feel like people do lots of lists on. There's not really like a unified subgenre of dangerous jobs movies. Yeah, sort of touches on a bunch of different genres, and we probably could have picked a lot of different movies. I certainly thought of a bunch of different ones, and then just kind of picked two almost at, almost at random. But uh, yeah, it seemed like it seemed like it certainly fit. It's hard to imagine uh, a, a more deadly job than. Uh, volatile TNT driver. Disposable human being used to transport. Yeah, you don't see that on a lot of resumes. No. Um, Well, what's your first random pick then? All right, my first pick is a movie that's actually just out in theaters but is also available on VOD, and that is the documentary Lucha Mexico, which is about the world of Mexican professional wrestling, or Lucha Libre, as it's known. Uh, People here the phrase professional wrestling, and they immediately think, okay, that's fake, which, I mean, I'm not sure that is completely accurate. I think it would be more accurate to say that pro wrestling is scripted. It is predetermined. The guys aren't necessarily, like, punching each other in the face, but they are really taking these big falls and dives, and particularly that's true in Lucha Libre, which is this very high-flying style of wrestling. And as the film really shows, and why that is good for this list like it's a dangerous job and these guys who do it get hurt and having sort of gotten more into or back into professional wrestling in the last couple of years this is something i find very interesting about it it is a fake quote-unquote sport where the participants are routinely really injured And then they have to work through those injuries because unlike, quote-unquote, real sports, there is no off-season in wrestling. And there's no union to protect the players or to pay for their injuries when they're hurt. And, you know, we see these guys on uh, TV and, like, the WWE, and we assume, well, they're very famous. They're on television. They must be rich. And sure, some of them are the very top guys, you know, your John Cena's, your Hulk Hogan's. But then there are all the guys, even in the WWE, who are they're probably making a pretty good living, but they're not rich. And their careers, like a football player, their career could be over in an instant. And then what do you do? And over the course of this documentary, two different men who are like sort of profiled in it die. And one of them dies in the ring. So you, you see in the film how, how many injuries, how dangerous it is. And... You know, if these guys can't wrestle, they can't work and they can't make a living to say nothing of how their lives might be 10 or 20 years down the road. You know, like if they have to retire, you know, who's going to pay for their bills, the the wear and tear they've already put on their body? Um, The documentary, it doesn't have a ton of story. It's much more of a survey of the world of Lucha Libre, and it looks at a, a bunch of different wrestlers, mostly in that world. But... I, I, I find this world really interesting, and I found the characters they chose to cover very interesting. There are Mexican-born guys. There are guys from America who've sort of gone south of the border looking for opportunities because they can't find it in America. And I think that, you know, without harping on it too much, they do a good job of showing how wrestlers 
not just in Mexico, but all over the world, and I certainly felt this way when I was a kid when I was really into wrestling, is that they're sort of presented and also by a lot of people perceived as these kind of real-world superheroes with their huge physiques, and they can do these incredible feats of strength. But what the movie shows quite effectively is that behind that invulnerable image, these guys are very mortal, and and what they do is very dangerous for all the talk of fakeness. And so I think there's something almost beautiful and tragic about that contradiction that I found pretty interesting in this film. So that's Lucha Mexico. It's a new documentary. It is playing in the limited release, but you can also find it on demand. Well, my first pick is also a documentary. It's available for rent, and it came to mind because it feels like every few years there's a new kind of grandly, beautifully shot documentary about mountain climbing. Mm. You know, there was Touching the Void, there was uh, Blind Sights, and more recently Meru, which, uh, you know, as as cameras have also gotten better and more portable, mm-hmm. footage has gotten kind of wilder and more intense and uh, and more incredible. So I wanted to pick a film that both is also stunningly shot, but that looks at the unseen work behind mountain climbing done by a particular group of people. The film is called Sherpa, and it's available for rent. Uh, It is directed by Jennifer Piedom, who is an Australian filmmaker and who went up to Everest in the 2014 climbing season, hoping to capture uh, the experiences of one particular Sherpa named Purva Tashi, who in his work over the season, if he reached the summit of Mount Everest, the mountain that is closest, uh, and that is like, you know, the great source of his work, he would have set the world record for having done 22 Everest summits. So um, basically one of the greatest mountain climbers in the world, albeit one who does it professionally to help other people uh, get to the top of the mountain. This movie becomes just a really interesting and very complex and very unsettling movie about the dynamic between professional mountain climbers and or not even professional mountain climbers people who pay right. for the experience of mountain the climbing customers customers rich and, customers yes it is very expensive and the community of sherpas who help them and you know sherpa is has become synonymous with the word of this like guide slash porter who helps people up the mountain but it is the name of this particular ethnic group uh in eastern nepal uh and the most famous sherpa who this film goes into uh tenzing norgay was the one who climbed with sir edmund hillary to who the first summit of of everest back in 1953 he did not get nearly as much acclaim in the end as Sir Edmund Hillary, which became, becomes a pattern that feeds up in through today. And this documentary shows the ways in which all of these Sherpas end up doing the most dangerous and the most kind of labor-intensive parts in laying the way for people who are paying you know, up to $75,000 to $100,000 to climb Everest. They set up the camps. They carry things in in the middle of the night. They carry things up the mountain, sometimes huge packs of things, so they can set up a camp so that when the travelers come up, at one point we see them setting up a tent that has a TV, a bookshelf full of, like, uh, paperbacks to read. They come around and, like, bring tea and hot towels in the morning. A lot has been done to make this industry more comfortable for people who are shelling out such large amounts of money. 
including there's shots of people like waiting in line to go up the summit because the mountain has gotten so overcrowded. Hmm. Now, one of the things that sets this movie apart from being just a movie about being a Sherpa and about the kind of weird ways in which uh, they are perceived as smiling, you know, always happy, beautiful locals by a lot of the people, whereas the reality is they're, they know perfectly well how dangerous this is and are trading, uh, you know, trading often on the fact that they're the only ones who can do this and who uh, benefit from salaries that are still not very high compared to how much people are paying, but that are like many times higher than the average salary you can make, maybe unsurprisingly, in a village in Nepal. Not a ton of other economic opportunities. But something that uh, the director manages to capture is, I mean, unfortunately... The season of 2014 is one in which there was a terrible accident on the most dangerous part of the mountain, the part that Sherpas have to cover multiple times over a season, whereas most climbers only do it once on the way up and then once on the way back down. And 16 Sherpas died in this accident. And what the film becomes is about the clash between uh, the Sherpas, particularly led by Purvatashi, and the customers. The customers want to keep going. They paid a lot of money. This is their narrow window to do this. Some of them have already tried before and weren't able to go. And the Sherpas who don't think it's appropriate and want to shut down the climbing season uh, because, you know, 16 people and the families need to, uh, families want to like deal and grieve. And I think what happens is like both very moving and very disturbing, particularly with the interviews with some of the the customers, including one who kind of barks angrily about the Sherpas. Uh, well, have you talked to their owners? Which I think encapsulates the attitude there very clearly. Um, so this is, I, I think, a really, it's, a, it's a documentary of surprising edge and depth, uh, dealing with a form of tourism that I think you know, gets treated in this very, it gets treated with a lot of, of grandeur because it is, it's an impressive physical act and mm -hmm. it's, it's an incredible thing to be able to do, but it, it really demands that you think about the kind of moral cost and moral justification of relying on this extremely dangerous labor being done by locals in order for people to have their moment of, you know, uh, glory on the top of the world. Uh, so definitely take a look at this. Sherpa, it is available for rent. It sounds fascinating. That one I haven't seen, but uh, you have definitely intrigued me. My next pick is one of the great cult films of all time, and it is about a profession that I am very interested in but would never want to do, much like mountain climbing up Everest, and that is The World of Stuntmen, and the film is The Stuntman, directed by Richard Rush, which you can currently find on Fandor. If you've ever seen a stunt in a film that was so dangerous you thought to yourself, you would have to be crazy to do that, this movie tells you sometimes they might be. Steve Rielsbeck stars as a war veteran who's on the run from the law, who eventually he seeks refuge on this film set where the Power Mad director, played by Peter O'Toole, basically offers him sanctuary on the condition that he becomes his new stuntman. And Railsback, who's already kind of emotionally damaged from the war, starts to become convinced that O'Toole's character wants him dead or at least doesn't care if he's alive or dead and that the big stunt he's preparing for him will basically be a kind of snuff film. And since 
you know, he, he he's wanted by the law and nobody really knows he's there. He could basically just kill him for a better shot and no one would be any wiser. So the, the movie is basically like what if John Rambo had stumbled out of First Blood and into something like Hooper, which is another movie about stuntmen. And through this mentally unstable character, the movie plays with these different ideas like illusion and reality and what is real and what is fiction and how paranoia can, you know, take take someone over. And then with the Peter O'Toole character, the director who lords over this film like uh, like a kind of dictator, you also have uh, this metaphor of the director as a kind of god. And then perhaps there's this even larger idea than that that – Anyone on earth is living at the whims of a god, you know, that if God was almost a director of the movies of our lives and how there is this very dark sense of humor about that, that that, that God maybe is sitting somewhere laughing at our pleasure. Um, I wouldn't recommend The Stuntman for people who are interested in the field of stuntman work. It is not a documentary. It is not a docudrama. It does not look at the world of stunts realistically. Like I said, it's much more It's much more about using stunts as the springboard for this sort of twisted action film that also has these ideas embedded in it. But it does have very good practical effects and stunts. And as I'm talking about it, I'm realizing it would maybe make a good double feature with Sorcerer. You know, it's from roughly the same era. And it is about this world where life is so cheap on this wonderful planet of ours that no matter how terrible a job is, you can always find someone who is desperate enough to do it. So that is The Stuntman. That is directed by Richard Rush, and that is available right now on Fandor. All right, for my second pick, I wanted to look at the idea of a dangerous job in a, from a slightly different angle. And so I went with Tangerine, which is now streaming on Netflix, Sean S. Baker's much-discussed film from last year about two trans women, Cindy, played by Kitana Kiki Rodriguez, and Alexandra, played by Maya Taylor, who do sex work on a particular block of Los Angeles and... Uh, who have lives of sometimes escalating drama, certainly in the period that the film captures a Christmas Eve in which Cindy is fresh out of jail and about to track down her maybe ex who seems to have cheated on her. But one thing that I really like about this film is that it it, it is literally bright. Like it is orangish in tone, you know, and that it, it, may, it refuses to to kind of lean into victimization of its characters as much as they clearly don't have a lot of options uh, in terms of where they've ended up and in terms economically. But I think that for all that it is sparky and funny and profane, it also uh, portrays its character's work uh, with never in a euphemistic manner, very frankly, and never it never skips over how tenuous their position is. Um, not just because of the dangers of law enforcement in terms of getting arrested, though Cindy does come back from jail, and Alexander does have a uh, a wrangle with a customer in which the cops come, and fortunately for her, you know, don't decide that they're going to arrest her. But it's a film that leaves this feeling of uncertainty uh, underneath uh, in a way that comes up, especially in the thing that happens late in the film, in which Cindy... Uh, goes up to a car to try and pick up a client, something we have seen the other character do uh, over the course of the day. 
And the person inside instead throws urine in her face and yells something, yells a slur and drives off. And it's this moment that just deflates her, this character who seems so unflappable and hilarious and motor-mouthed and uh, almost Teflon in her ability to shrug off all of the world's slights. And I think that it is this reminder one of the, the the several reminders that goes comes goes on throughout the film that uh, these women are you know out on the street with no kind of means of protection other than what they can give themselves that they constantly have to put themselves in vulnerable positions just to do this work and i think that there is something about the way that is woven in without it being the point of the film or the plot. There are a lot of movies that rely almost very casually on sex workers getting murdered. You know, that this is not a film about that, but it allows that to be a part of the reality of their lives uh, and just kind of this flicker that I think is something that's very impressive about Tangerine. You know, that is, is I think, some a way in which Sean Baker's uh, the research and the talking he did to to girls in the neighborhood clearly comes through, and I think it's a good reminder, you know, that dangerous jobs are not always ones about driving dynamite, um, and that uh, this is a very dangerous job that women and men do have done throughout history, and that it's particularly well portrayed here. So that is Tangerine. It is streaming on Netflix. It's a great movie. All right, let's let's do Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. But first, Allison, I have a question. Ask me the question. Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters. Ghost. Correct. That was the correct answer. Ghostbusters. So, you know, you haven't really heard a lot about this movie. It's been very <laughs> quiet. It's generally been warmly received in the build-up to it. Sort of a just a very humdrum release. Nothing of note to talk about. So, I guess I'm just curious. What did you think of this uh, very typical standard Hollywood reboot, yeah, Allison? Not divisive at not all. Not divisive, not polarizing. are completely on the level. People have responded to it with, I thought, very nuanced and thoughtful anticipation throughout. The internet has shown itself to be a place of calm, reasoned uh, discourse. So let's continue that here. What did you think? I think it's a funny movie. I think it has four excellent lead performances and one... I, guess, I don't know why it surprised me so much, but one very funny performance from Chris Hemsworth. I think that it's a good movie, but not a great one. And I wish it was a great one because that would make the the thing that we're not mentioning here, uh, it would make it a little easier to to kind of fling back at, at a lot of the advanced hatred that this movie has received. I, I think, but I think for me, a lot of, its weaker points have to do more with what it means to be a reboot slash remake of a of a you know movie that's a great favorite than it has to do with with a gender flip by any means. Yeah, that's How a nice way you? of putting it. I th- I think you liked it a little bit more than me, but I I liked it. I enjoyed it. I think the strength, ironically, given the nuanced and very measured reception to it leading up to it, the best part of the movie is the cast, is the main. The four Ghostbusters are fantastic. Kate McKinnon, I think, is a star. I was As soon as they announced this idea, I was like, boy, I hope she's one of the Ghostbusters because I love her on Saturday Night Live. 
and she didn't disappoint. I thought she was fantastic. Uh, I thought her character was the real, the real highlight, the real standout. And I do kind of agree also that the, the biggest problem with it is that it just feels like they can't stop proving that they love Ghostbusters with this endless supply of references and callbacks and cameos. cameos. The cameos, as much as like there's faces that I was really happy to see on screen. Of course. The movie like pauses for applause basically every time yeah. someone shows up. Yeah. And they, they basically, and they stop the movie. They're not well, one or two of them I thought were kind of cute and clever and they worked within the movie. One or two I thought just ground the movie completely to a halt and the performances were so terrible, frankly, from actors I love, so bad that they just, they really took you out of the movie. And I really felt like, I almost felt like it was the worst possible way to deal with the sort of anticipation for the movie. It felt to me like they were they were going in studio rooms, executive conference rooms, whatever, going... Well, we've got to prove that we love this movie as much as the fans do. They don't think that we were, you know, they don't think we like the the movie or that we're going to, you know, mistreat it. We have to prove that we love the movie by throwing in all these references and jokes and quotes. Everybody loves quoting Ghostbusters, certainly I do, but the movie wants to quote it a little too much. I suddenly realized what it's like to listen to me quote Ghostbusters all day long. It stinks. That's what I realized watching this movie. So, I think overall, it's a good movie. It's not a disaster in any shape or form. It's an enjoyable blockbuster, especially this summer. It's one of the better ones. But I just wish they had kind of trusted their own material and their own cast a little bit more and just cut down the references to a movie that is one of my all-time favorites by like half. Yeah, there are parts of this movie towards the end. There there are bits of imagery in which... It's almost as if they're fighting the original movie. Mm. It is almost as if their enemy is not the original movie in that it's bad, but the original movie in the way it weighs on, yeah, uh, the ex- you know, just like the memory of it, and yeah, the deference to it yes. weighs on and almost crushes these characters. The spirit of the old movie haunts the film much as the way the ghosts haunt the the Mercado Hotel in the film. I mean, you feel the weight of this old movie and. And, and, and the, I feel like this movie could have done more to get away from it. They don't. They're sort of trying to bust the ghost of the old movie in scene after scene after scene. They're not confined to like one or two scenes in the beginning or one sequence. It is constant. It, it From the very first scene to the very last scene, there are – to after the credits. They keep doing it after the credits. There's a reference to the old movie. And uh, at a certain point, I did get a little frustrated and say, please just – let it let much like I felt to a lot of people lately. Just let it go. Let it, let it go. Yeah, it did remind me of the latest Star Wars movie. Oh, for sure. That it it almost it follows like a lot of the beats of the plot of the original almost like helplessly. Yeah. Like, well, this is what you want, right? Like, this is what you want. It is an interesting comparison. I liked The Force Awakens a lot more than this movie, although I did enjoy this movie. 
it is interesting to contemplate how that movie, The Force Awakens, was able to integrate the old characters. And one wonders, although I do, it could have been kind of insulting, to, you know, to have these women have to have the franchise handed down to them, which I think would be ridiculous. But it might have been interesting if the movie could have worked had the Ghostbusters, the old guys, been willing to do it. Maybe it would have felt a little more seamless if they were in the movie and the movie wasn't in this weird position of being a new idea, a new story but also having to shoehorn in all these references and these actors. It doesn't, it just, they don't fit. Yeah. I, you know, the best moments of the movie, and I think there are a lot of good ones. There's some I, good I, moments. I mean this sincerely when I say, I think all four lead performances are so enjoyable. Yes. Uh, especially when they're together yes. and they're playing off one another. Absolutely. Uh, I don't really have a favorite, but the best moments are when they are just bouncing off each other and doing weird Paul Feig movie kind of things, yeah. you know, and as opposed to being like, now decide which one is Egon and decide which one is Ray. Right. Well, I thought they did a good job of not doing that for yes. the most part. The the four Ghostbusters, they don't feel like analogs. It's not like uh, Petra well, Venkman or with one exception. I think. Yeah, I, I suppose. But but they didn't it, they didn't sort of transpose their personalities, you know, and I like that about it. I wish there was more sort of stuff like that. Agreed. I still think it's worth seeing. It's It's fun. Yeah. And now that that movie will never be talked about again, I'm sure it's just going to float away into the ether. There will be no more controversy. We've settled it forever, Allison. Doesn't that feel good? Yeah, that's taken care of. <laughs> that, Work that, well done. That's that, as uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman once said. All right, let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball. Let's wrap things up with some recommendations for new movies that have come to streaming. We will give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And then we've got one film that we've each chosen for each other blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first? I'm going first. All right, fine. Go first. Why don't you first give us... Three new releases. Well, first up, new to Netflix is Mountains May Depart, Jia Jenka's latest movie about a woman named Tao, uh, played by Tao Zhao, who begins as a young woman in Shanxi, and then the movie skips forward to when she's a married mother, and then skips forward again to the near future in Australia, uh, and becomes this extraordinarily bittersweet uh, movie about Chinese diaspora. I, this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. I think it's pretty phenomenal. Even the last section, which gets maligned, I think is very good. Um, also new to Netflix, conveniently, is Jia Jenka, A Guy from Fenyang, which is a documentary about the filmmaker uh, from director Walter Salas of Central Station and On the Road. Uh, that's gotten plenty of acclaim in its own right. So, you know, if you're curious about Jajanka, who is, I think, one of the most prominent, certainly on the art house circuit, uh, directors from China working today, you should check that out. That is on Netflix as well. And finally, new to Amazon Prime is Fort Tilden. I've given this film a shout out before, but wanted to again. This is uh, Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers' savage satire about hipster entitlement, starring a very funny Bridie Elliott. Uh, daughter of Chris Elliott, and Claire McNulty as a pair of girls trying to cross Brooklyn to go to the beach and meet up with two cute boys who may or may not know they're coming. It is bitingly funny. Uh, it is one of the harshest films about hipsterdom I've ever seen, uh, or TV shows. And uh, Bliss and Rogers, incidentally, 
have a new TV series called Search Party that is coming to TBS starring Aaliyah Shawkat. So if you like Fort Tilden, Fort Tilden uh, keep an eye out for that. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. Well, first up, we have one from Robin Austin. Rob writes, wanted to make a couple of suggestions due to the passing of Oscar-winning Deer Hunter director Michael Cimino. While I don't love all of Cimino's work, he is undeniably an important figure in American film history. First is the great 2004 documentary Final Cut, The Making and Unmaking of Heaven's Gate. Originally produced for the now-defunct Trio Network, Final Cut details the creation of Cimino's period western Heaven's Gate, which became a legendary flop that destroyed United Artists Studio. Heaven's Gate's failure set the standard for all out-of-control movie making and effectively ended the 1970s auteur golden age. So you're off the hook, William Friedkin. The doc is a fast-paced, well-made, and very entertaining behind-the-scenes story of everything that went wrong. It's currently only available on YouTube. It's been uploaded in full in eight parts. Not great quality, but not bad at all. Second is Steven Soderbergh's fan cut of Heaven's Gate called Heaven's Gate, The Butcher's Cut, available on the director's weird and cool blog slash marketplace slash website thing, Extension 765. Yes, the Oscar-winning director of Ocean's Eleven and Traffic did his own cut of Heaven's Gate under his alter ego, Marianne Bernard. He trimmed the film down to an hour and 46 minutes, something Soderbergh wryly acknowledges is both illegal and immoral. Is it? And is it an improvement? Check it out and decide for yourselves. Side note factoid, Michael Cimino was the original director of Footloose. What would that have been wow. like? Yeah. Wow. Love the show. Keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you, Rob. That is a great note. And secondly, we have a recommendation from Eric who writes, In honor of the late, great Abbas Kiarostami, I'd like to recommend one of his lesser-known pictures, Where Is My Friend's House?, which is streaming on Hulu. It's a beautiful little film about a young boy trying to return a notebook that he accidentally took to make sure his friend avoids expulsion. The film is deceptively simple and touches upon many topics such as age, empathy, and human nature. Also, I'd like to throw in that Andrew Stanton's student film, A Story, is streaming on Vimeo. It's very funny, sharp, and surprisingly bitter, especially considering the work Stanton went on to do. It's only a few minutes, so no one should have any excuse not to see it. And uh, that link will be in on our page, uh, filmspottingsvu.com, if you want to find that. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. You gave me number five. It is Marguerite et Julienne. This is a 2015 French drama directed by Valérie Donzelli, uh, who directed a film called uh, Declaration of War a few years ago that I liked a lot. Mm -hmm. This is about a brother and sister in an incestuous relationship uh, based on a screenplay from the 70s that was written for Truffaut. I can't believe it's French. Yeah, that was based on a true story of two French siblings in the 17th century who were executed under charges of incest. Uh, was a very divisive film at Cannes last year and then kind of vanished. I don't even remember if it got a theatrical release. But here it is now on Netflix where I will watch it. Huzzah. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yeah, why not? Well, then why don't you give us three new releases? All right. First up on Amazon Prime is Blackthorn, a sort of revisionist Western from 2011 about an aging Butch Cassidy, played by Sam Shepard, who managed to somehow survive the supposedly fatal shootout in Bolivia in 1908 and is now living under the name James Blackthorne, who learns of a possible son back in America. Certainly not on par with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I just realized I mentioned now on two podcasts in a row. 
But uh, Shepard gives a really good performance as the older and possibly wiser Butch. That's Blackthorn, available on Amazon Prime. Next up, I wanted to recommend something kind of as a reaction to the BFG. I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, but uh, the new Spielberg movie, which I know neither of us were big fans of, was a big disappointment to me because I still love Steven Spielberg. And because I liked Spielberg's last big effects-heavy kids film, The Adventures of Tintin, which you can stream right now on Tubi TV. This motion capture animated movie is based on the long-running Belgian comic about the kid adventurer. And in many ways, I feel like it is the Indiana Jones sequel that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was not. Uh, I know some people felt that it looked too cartoonish, too plasticky because of the mocap, but... I felt like it showed Spielberg as this guy who is still in love with movie making. He's down with new technology, even though he's kind of an old school film guy. And it had so many wonderful shots and it had this great nimbleness of camera, even though there's no camera because it's all mocap and it's done in a computer. And it had this great comedy and these chases. And just in general, it was a really delightful action comedy for uh, the whole family, as they say. So that is The Adventures of Tintin, which is available on Tubi TV. Finally, I just wanted to mention briefly that a movie we recently reviewed on the show is now on Netflix, the Turkish teen drama Mustang. This was the Academy Award nominee for Best Foreign Language Film about a family of free-spirited sisters who are repressed and controlled by a cruel uncle and this generally conservative society that really has no place for these young women and their sense of spirit and adventure and freedom. You can hear our full review of the film on SVU number 112, and you can watch Mustang now on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Angela in Utica, New York. Angelo writes, after listening to your suggestions for 30 for 30 films, I wanted to add a couple of others. My favorite is You Don't Know Bo about the amazing Bo Jackson. It follows his life as he enters the NFL, his time in the MLB, dealing with his major hip injury, as well as his current hobby, bow shooting. This is also streaming on Netflix. Streaming on Hulu are the 30 for 30 shorts, including most of the 36 episodes. These are very short, 10 to 30 minutes long, hence the title, and they cover a variety of topics. My favorites were Wilt Chamberlain, Borscht Belt Bellhop, The Great Imposter, Posterized, Wrestling the Curse, and The High Five. Thanks for the great show. That's from Angela in Utica, New York. And I've seen You Don't Know Bo. That is another great 30 for 30. I haven't really watched those shorts. I didn't realize they were available on Hulu. So I'm going to have to check those out. Uh, Next up, we've got a recommendation from Kai in Melbourne, Australia. Kai writes, hi, Matt and Allison. I love your show. Even more than basic film spotting, but don't spread that around. And I would like to shoot you an obscure streaming recommendation. The film is B-movie weirdo Larry Cohen's God Told Me To from 1976. The basic premise, a New York City cop with Scorsese levels of Catholic guilt, played by Tony Lobianco, investigates a series of murders that have one thing tying them together. The last words of the murderers were always, God told me to. Without getting into too much detail, let's say this investigation leads to virgin births, a glowing cult leader, and possibly a cabal of intersex aliens. Despite the fact that this verges on incoherence and is super low budget, I actually think it's an existentialist masterpiece. Cohen is genuinely insightful in his interrogation of faith and doubt. In its own insane way, the film basically asks the question, what if God is just as infallible as humanity 
but infinitely more powerful. And that's the film God Told Me To, and it is currently available for rent. Kind regards, writes Kai in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you, Kai. And finally, before we get to my, my list pick, I just wanted to acknowledge we had a donation from listener Mark Goldstein, who wrote to the show... Hi, Film Spotting crew. I've been listening to SVU and the Mothership religiously for a couple of years. Oddly enough, I was inspired to donate by Matt Singer, who, in Film Spotting SVU number 113, described Jerry Maguire as, quote, one of the seminal 90s romantic comedies, one of the seminal Tom Cruise performances, and also one of the seminal Cameron Crowe movies. At this point, I reached critical mass on the overuse and misuse of the adjective seminal I love Matt, bear him no ill will, and understand that he and the film spotting community are far from being the lone perpetrators of this word crime. But let the record show, I paid my money and shall air my grievance. No more seminal, writes Mark. Uh, I hope I haven't said it on this podcast. I don't know. I know that we, I, wasn't... I know that there are words that we abuse, and I think they go in waves, and I apologize for all of them that I'm sure you have noticed oh, yes. over and if, the years. And if you pay to make us stop, we'll at least try. Yes, we'll, we'll start making a list and uh, forbidden words. Yes. Well, Mark, I personally apologize for my use of that word, which I won't repeat again because it's so icky and gross, and I wasn't using it properly. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll try to do better. That's all we can do. So thank you, Mark, and thank you for your donation. All right, and give me one from your My List. You gave me number seven, and this time number seven on my My List is My Life, directed by Nicholas Vinding Refn. Uh, film director Nicholas Vinding Refn of Drive reveals his work habits and vulnerability in this intimate documentary shot by his wife, Liv Corfixen. I just watched The Neon Demon um, just earlier this week, and so... I'm going to be talking about it with our little $5 film club that I host in Brooklyn, which if you're in Brooklyn and you're interested, you should look it up, the $5 film club at uh, Nighthawk Cinemas. We do it once a month. We meet and talk about movies. And the movie this month is Neon Demon, so I thought to do due diligence and full research, although I wouldn't probably watch this documentary otherwise. Uh, I actually just added it a few days ago so I could check it out before this discussion just to see if it had anything that felt like it – had some bearing on the Neon Demon, which I generally liked, and which also ends with a dedication to Refn's wife. So I thought maybe this would be the right time to watch it. My Life, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah, that dedication is so uh, weighted <laughs> by how that movie ends. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange place to put that dedication. I will say that, yeah. Let's get to our listener's choice options for our next show. We've been going with kind of these themes the last couple of episodes where we give you three options that are all kind of connected or similar in some way. And our connection this time is 80s nostalgia, something we know a lot about and which I suppose Ghostbusters fans know a lot about since we already talked about Ghostbusters. And which apparently everyone knows all about since these are all recent yes in addition to ghostbusters these are all recent films 80s nostalgia very popular the only thing more popular than 80s nostalgia allison 90s nostalgia that's the only thing that's more popular right now agreed yeah i don't know if i'm ready for yeah we're too old for that yeah yeah i I remember the 90s too much yeah i think you have our first option what is it it is sing street which is going to be available for rent it is the most recent film from john carney who did once who has made multiple very sweet movies about the power of music mm-hmm. to unite people. I would say that this one is one of the better ones. It is set in 1985 Dublin, where a teenage boy starts a band for the classic reason of wanting to impress a girl. 
and learns to channel the pain and experiences of his home life into his music. Very sweet, very crowd-pleasing, and really just so well done. Also, great performance from Jack Rayner, the not Han Solo, but was in the group. Um, so that is Sing Street. That's your first option. Um, and definitely grounded in the 80s there. What's our second option, Matt? Our second, and let, let me say also that I really like that movie as well. So that's a, that would be a good option. Our option two is actually a television show or a Netflix show. It is the newest Netflix show, at least for the moment. Netflix is like, it's like the Alex Gibney of streaming services. You can't keep it up with it all. It's just, there's just so much of it. But the latest, latest Netflix show is called Stranger Things. The show is a 1980s drama set in Indiana where a young boy vanishes into thin air and actually has gotten some pretty good reviews. The reviews that I've read or at least glanced over all said basically that they really liked the, the show and that it kind of snuck up on them and surprised them. They weren't expecting a ton from it. doesn't have you know the big marquee players that a lot of the Netflix shows have. Um, this one does star Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine, but... You know, behind the the camera, not the marquee names that some of the other things like House of Cards or Orange is the New Black has. So yeah, I wasn't really planning on checking it out, but now I'm I'm more interested after reading that it's actually kind of kind of good. So that is going to be option number two: Stranger Things, the first season, uh, available now on Netflix. And option number three is a movie we have mentioned briefly before, but I certainly would love an opportunity to revisit this one. And Me too. Go into depth on it. Sure. It is Everybody Wants Some, uh, which is available for rent now. Richard Linklater's 1980 set spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused, taking place at a Texas college right before the start of the semester, and all about how great it is to be in college when you are a handsome baseball player. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah, who can't? Mm. Um, so that's your third option. Everybody wants some. All right. Well, which movie or TV show should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? It's up to you. Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, July 25th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the film or TV show and then join us for our conversation on our next episode on or around Tuesday, August 2nd. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies and TV shows and shorts we discuss on the episode. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore, and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash SVU. Uh, but that's where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice vote and where we share more streaming suggestions, both from SVU listeners and from me, because I obsessively comb through <laughs> every service. And we appreciate you for it. Mm, for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>